Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda, producer of today's show and director of the annual Patients as Partners U.S. program at the Conference Forum. Today's show features a talk previously delivered by Les Jordan, working group member, and Cindy Gagan, team lead for City, where they shared findings from a multi-stakeholder project undertaken by the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative to better understand patient perspectives on mobile technologies and clinical trials. The survey, conducted amongst 100 patients across multiple therapeutic areas, evaluated the ways patients would be willing to use mobile technologies and the impact on their participation in clinical trials. Additional focus areas included potential impacts of mobile on participant experiences in clinical trials, patient willingness to share personal health data, important attributes for designing trials that address patient preferences and expectations, and implications for the research enterprise. I'm Liz Jordan. I am the Vice President for Software at Target Health, and uh, I'm joined by Cindy Gagan, who's a a patient advocate, and you've heard Cindy ask questions already. Um, So uh, what we're here to talk about is we're both members of CITI, which is the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative. It's a public-private partnership uh, with members of FDA, membership from sponsors, CROs, patient advocates, and really what the goal is... um, of the, uh, uh, of the group is really transforming clinical trials. So how can we come up with recommendations for industry, recommendations for, um, for uh, various groups and various stakeholders within the industry to really drive adoption and practices that are going to improve how we run clinical trials. Uh, and Cindy and I are on the mobile clinical trials program. And the, within that program, there are a few work streams We're in the stakeholder perception group, um, and uh, what we're going to be talking about today are some of the findings that we have from uh, potential research participants. Um, Just as an overview of who we are again, so you can see in this project team, uh, there are a bunch of people from all sorts of uh, different organizations, really a a cross-industry group um, of uh, patients, sponsors, academia, uh, FDA, uh, IRBs, uh, you name it, we, we have people that are represented in this group. And the advantage of that is that we've been able to uh, go back and look at exactly what do patients want. So we heard yesterday surveys of patients that were done by various groups. I know that Ken, when he started off the morning yesterday, talked about some of the surveys that they did. So we said, all right, we're going to go and do a survey of patients and one particular area. We're going to look at um, how patients, how willing are patients to participate in mobile trials with the hypothesis that mobile trials are going, we're going to be able to attract more patients, uh, that we're going to make it easier for for patients to participate and and all of those things. So we uh, went out to research match. Uh, recruited a number of participants for our own study uh, and uh, ended up with 193 uh, respondents across five uh, therapeutic areas, Uh, arthritis, diabetes, Parkinson's, and and cardiovascular disease. Um, There there is a bias in the data, and Cindy will talk to this later on. Um, What we found in our respondents was that we really did not have underrepresented populations in this group. Uh, Most of the respondents had uh, college degrees or at least some college education. 
Um, and you know, this is kind of representative of what you find in trials in general. Um, so it was an interesting, you know, interesting bias that we found in our data. And we just want to address it up front because it is an interesting thing um, to to note. 87% um, of the people that we uh, spoke with used a smartphone daily. And so that's an interesting little tidbit of information. Um, and also speaks to, again, you know, do we have a fully representative sample of our population uh, in the U.S.? The answer is no. Um, but there are things that we can take away from this that are interesting. So what we did, the methodology, uh, we took two scenarios. Uh, we had a, a traditional trial, and we would explain this to the participant over the phone. Uh, there were 13 visits over a year, uh, a patient diary that you complete at home, uh, and all, all sorts of other things that are related. Then, it was online. Oh, I'm sorry. It was online. That's right. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, uh, and then uh, we did a mobile trial. So how willing are you to participate in a mobile trial, three visits over a year, and, and so forth? All right. So what did we find? Uh, well, the headline kind of says it all, doesn't it? Uh, most people preferred the mobile trial. So based on what you just heard, would you take part in the trial? And 80% said, yeah, I would take part in a mobile trial. Um, and in a traditional one, yeah, we had a, we had, did have a majority, but so as it was at 51%. So yeah, not exactly a ringing endorsement in a comparison between the two. So if you had to make a choice between the two, which one would you do? And 76% uh, said, yeah, if I had to choose between a type of trial to participate in, I would participate in a mobile trial, one that can be run out of the home using devices in my home where I don't have to go to the site every week and something that has really reduced the patient burden. So that's an interesting piece of data. Um, so of those who preferred the mobile trial, you know, what were some of the things that they said? Well, you can read of them, but it really comes down to the highlight at the bottom there. It requires less of me on a daily basis. This is a verbatim from one of the, pers uh, one of the respondents. Uh, it requires less of me on a daily basis, fewer clinic visits. Uh, I am really not good about daily recording in a diary. Uh, but that's a really great verbatim. Um, and then on the other side, participants who said, yeah, I want a traditional trial. Uh, and it came down to uh, a lot of the reasons for that was the invasiveness of the trial. I would, sure, I'd wear a monitor for a month. Uh, I might wait, wear it a week for a year, but uh, it's too uncomfortable. I'm not gonna wear it all the time. Uh, I, I don't, and frankly, I don't like the idea of someone having uh, my monitoring my vitals all day, every day, for a year. It's just, that's too invasive. Um, so interesting, uh, points that came out of, of that survey. So we then asked questions around uh, bring your own device versus something that was pro uh, provisioned. And interestingly, 55% said, you know, I would rather, I would rather have a, uh, a provisioned device. So something that's not mine, it's not on my data plan, and we'll see that in a second. Um, and then if the trial requires a provision device, 
would I wear only the device? Would I do both that and a BYOD? And, and you can see that 75% uh, said, you know, I, I don't have, I don't want to carry multiple devices around. I just want to use one. So I'll use the, I'll, I'll use the provision device, but I really don't want to have multiple devices. So interesting uh, part of the data there. And then at, at the bottom, uh, most thought that it was important that the mobile technology does not use personal data minutes. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to be using it on my dime. I don't want to be uh, sharing data. Now, what's interesting is that myself, I'm a participant in a study, and I don't know how many of you are aware of the Stanford uh, Heart Study. Um, and uh, I have Marfan syndrome, and uh, obviously my heart is of a concern if you're aware of Marfan syndrome. And so I participate in that study. It is an online only, it is a BYOD study, and it's used on my personal phone. Now, I have an unlimited data plan, so for me, I don't care. Uh, but I could see where I might think twice about sharing my data um, it, it, over my own paid plan with, with that study. So an interesting, uh, interesting data point. If you were asked to join a trial, which of these would you use? Now, we got a little more granular. We were all talking basics and would you do it or not. Now, what kinds of devices would you use? Would you use a wrist-worn device? Well, almost everybody said, yeah. You know, I have an example here, the good old Apple Watch. Um, would I wear that? Absolutely. Um, a smartphone or a tablet app? Sure. Um, a patch? Yeah. Uh, bodily fluid diagnostic devices? Oh, okay. And now we get down to ingestibles. And, and sure, the numbers are still over 75%, but now you're seeing as the, as the device gets more invasive, the willingness to use it in a trial uh, becomes less. And, and that's uh, kind of obvious. And I have you know, so examples of these things. So um, I have an example of one. This one is a, this one is a biosensor. It's a single lead EKG. I, I was at HIMSS last week pick this up at Hims. Uh, it's a single lead EKG. You stick it on, lasts five days. You can shower with it on, and it's transmitting all the time uh, your vitals across eight different metrics, including EKG, your heart rate, obviously, uh, your respiratory rate. Um, it's even got an accelerometer that will detect if you have a fall. So uh, an interesting little a device, and then there's another one. So that's a that's an uh, an interesting example of what a patch would look like. And then I have another one here. This is a, a device called Pill Tracker, and it has the pills inside of the phone itself, and it only unlocks when it's time to take your meds. And when you push the meds through, it actually records that it has been taken. So an interesting another interesting example of what. Yeah, we think of smartphone apps, we just think of surveys that were taken. And it, it goes beyond that into a far greater range of other things. So those are some examples of, of uh, what kinds of uh, devices really are available in each of those categories. And so most said I would wear a wearable monitor daily for a year or as long as it lasts. How, how long would you do that? How many people would do that? Well, if it was up to six months to 11 months, it was interesting that uh, the number of people who were saying this was, you know, was, was uh, under 40%. But people are willing to participate and use mobile devices 
in the home. And uh, the number of people that have said, as long as the trial lasts, hey, more than a year, okay. Uh, a year or more, great. Um, and it, that was a really very interesting uh, response for that, is that people are willing to do these things across a wide range of different types of uh, devices that are available. So what are some of the important attributes of those wearable monitors? Um, and some things to call out, you can see the data here, um, but really some things to call out, it has to be simple to use. So that patch that I showed you really doesn't require anything of the patient. You put it on, and every five days you change it. And uh, that's a really uh, interesting uh, approach. It does, it's simple to use, collects data on its own, doesn't inf interfere with what I do on a daily basis. Uh, you remember the old halter monitors? Uh, they were, <laughs> right? So the old halter monitors were a, uh, a big device that was slung and you wore it for uh, 24 hours or seven days, however long the doctor wanted you to wear it for. And the leads were always falling off and yeah, it was just, it was a pain. I wore one about 15, 20 years ago and it, it was just, it was ugly. My daughter wore one uh, a couple months ago and she just kept a smartphone in her pocket and the leads were just individual leads that were put on. And she wore it for seven days, she could shower, um, and it was constantly transmitting. Really vast change in uh, how things uh, are, are available now and uh, really don't interfere with what you do. Um, so it doesn't take a lot of time to use. And then we start getting down to uh, things that are less important, but a good percentage of people say, I want to see my data. And we've seen this in... Uh, presentation a couple presentations ago, I want to see my data. So patients want to be informed, uh, they want to know what's going on, and, and that's our really important. Um, does it have to be pretty? Uh, no, it doesn't have to be pretty. So people rated the importance of attractiveness of the data, there was only 40% or so that said, it was 37% that said, yeah, I want it to be attractive. Um, not really all that important. All right. But it was important that it wasn't easily noticed or seen. Well, that's true. So that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. So two points above that: it not easily noticed or seen. Yeah. So it it doesn't have to be pretty, but I want it hidden, <laughs> and that's really the point to take from that. So this is a a, a, a negative approach, but uh, only two percent of people said it is not important to see the data that's collected of me, which means that forty eight percent said that it was very important, and 32% said it was important. So you take those two together, and you've got a large amount of people who are saying, I, again, I, I want to see my data, and I want to see my data, and that is very important to me, uh, that I be able to see that data as it's collected off of me. You know, we've struggled with this uh, even internally on studies that we've run. Uh, we just recently started a CGM study. The sponsor was adamant that we uh, that we hide the uh, the data from the participant coming off the CGM pod that they're wearing, um, but we go to the IRB and the IRB is adamant that the patient be able to see their data because you know what they're going to do a finger prick and get that data anyway. So why not show it to them, right? So it's an interesting conundrum that we have that on the on the sponsor side and on the CRO side 
from a biostatistician's point of view, uh, we don't want the patient to see their data, right? But from the patient point of view, absolutely, they want to be able to see it. All right, uh, so that's on, uh, on the mobile side. And then what about clinic visits or communication preferences? Uh, how often would you prefer to see the doctor? And uh, start and end of the trial? Yeah, I want to go see the doctor uh, at the start of the trial and at the end of the trial. That's the minimum that I, you know, that's the minimum I want to see them. Uh, but there's 16% of the people that said, yeah, I want to see them all the time. Um, so what's interesting is the approach to those. Um, and people are saying, you know, 72%, I could do an online live chat. So instead of a clinic visit, you know, fire up a video and let me talk with the study coordinator, the study nurse, whoever is collecting the data. Um, an interesting approach. Um, I want to be able to see that. So online live chat, video conferencing, you know, those are really preferred methods. Having that human interaction is still very important. Even though you're doing a virtual trial, even though you're doing a remote trial, that human interaction is still a very important thing and that connectedness back to the site is important. But that also means that there's some burden on the site. Uh, we were at, uh, I was at uh, SCRS, the, uh, the Site Solution Summit, back in the fall, and it really became obvious. Sites were complaining that in virtual trials, who do patients call? Who do patients call in the virtual trial if something goes wrong with their device? Do they call the device manufacturer like they were told to? No. They do not call the device manufacturer like they were told to. They call the trial staff. And so what we're finding is that in virtual trials, the site burden, counterintuitively, actually becomes higher because they're calling the site instead of, uh, instead of calling the device manufacturer or the CRO or whoever is handling support for the trial. Um, so they wanted in-person training by trial staff at the beginning. Well, that kind of makes sense. But then they wanted to be able to call the study staff if anything went wrong. Um, so some key findings from the survey, just to wrap it up, and then Cindy and I are going to talk about some of the patient perspectives on this. Um, most survey respondents uh, preferred that the trial scenario is mobile. So I want to be a mobile device, um, a mobile trial, 76%. Um, they don't need to see the doctor, except at the beginning and the end, 84%. Uh, and then a range of devices, like the ones I showed you, are acceptable, but it has to be simple. It has to be easy to learn. It can't interfere with my daily life. Um, and uh, I, it has to be confidential, but I still want to see my data, right? And so, the, so was, those are some of the really important points uh, coming out of this. And so Cindy and I are going to go into a little more depth here on those key findings and talk about, all right, so you know, from the patient perspective, because both of us are, are patient advocates, from a patient perspective, you know, what, is, what are the things that are really important for us that we can highlight from the data? So, Cindy? So to take 
So I'm Cindy Gagan. I'm a breast cancer survivor and an ad research advocate of 22 years. I tend to be attracted to multi-stakeholder collaborations of late. And one of the things that I really appreciate about City, the Clinical Trust Transformation Initiative, is it's not only a multi-stakeholder member organization, I'm on the steering committee, but they really take the patient input pretty seriously. And as anybody who maybe experienced me in the last couple of days, I ask a lot of questions and I really do my homework and I ensure that the context for the patient perspective is is integrated and understood. So here's a little bit of background and context on this survey. This was an online survey and it was described to patients that IRB approved to take one hour on the internet. It was recruited through something that's like match.com to recruit research people interested in research. So as you can see, I'm describing a survey that can potentially be pretty biased and also um, that's not generalizable or representative and it was not intended to be. These were also potential participants in research. So this is what people said they preferred, what they might do, but not necessarily what, what they're, they said what they're willing to do and what they preferred, but not necessarily what they do. So to take some, so when we looked at this, there were some ahas in here, like things you wouldn't expect. And so we need to kind of look at this because this will enable us to make some recommendations and potentially some things that are generalizable that are common across cultures, et cetera. But we need to be a little bit careful because these are people who could sit on the internet for an hour answering a survey. These do not kind of necessarily align with the reasons why people chose the mobile trial as opposed to the traditional trial because of convenience and because it wouldn't interfere with their lives. Okay, so just, just saying that. Now, what people said is that they only wanted to see their doctor, potentially most of them, once or twice at the beginning and the end of the survey. And that was kind of a surprise because people think that would be one of the things people would want to give up in a mobile trial. Um, but these were not very sick people. So I did a little bit of subset analysis. Only 30% of these people really said that most of them were diagnosed more than five years ago, and only 30% of them said that their illness interfered with their lives on a daily basis. So this is not the same as somebody who's got something tragic going on where seeing their doctor gives them some sort of... The other thing that came out, if you read the fill-in-the-blanks part of this one-hour online survey, which was done really, really well, I should say, was the convenience part is really what swayed people towards the technology. And um, if you start to put more... You know, shift some of the responsibility, like to do diaries and things on, on the device, et cetera, it might not be quite as attractive. So there's that part. The other, the other thing that was kind of, I wouldn't say surprising, but we've talked about this in this meeting before, is this the sharing of their data. Now, a lot of this, I think, comes from expectations of consumer wearables and consumer technology. And so you're telling somebody you're going to give them a device that's going to track you 24-7. They have those same expectations. They can see how many steps they went, et cetera. Um, and they expect to see it on a daily basis. They also said, which didn't come out in the slides, was not only did they want it shared with them, they wanted it in a context to 
enable them to do something about it. So these are pretty high bars that we might have to think about as we kind of pursue recommendations. So with that, um, part of the city process is um, we are, and I think a lot of, well, several people in this room were at our expert meeting back in January where we looked at this raw data. Um, We also interviewed uh, site investigators and got some pretty similar kind of an interesting kind of input related to the resources required on their end as Les um, talked about a little bit. But we're going to finalize these solutions, develop some recommendations out of them, and then disseminate them, looking to um, implement them, okay? And then in the toolkit that you will get, as um, Les described, there are four parts to this. This is complicated. This is looking at registration, mobile clinical trials, not just trials, tracking behaviors, et cetera, or some of the apps. the endpoint recommendations were released last year. Um, we're working on ours on the stakeholders, which include site investigators as well as potential participants or patients. There's a mobile devices trial looking at the, the needs from a technology basis as well as legal and res- regulatory. This is complicated. This is hard. It's coming. It was at the request. This work was at the request of the agency. So um, input, adoption, et cetera, Appreciated, but I just wanted to kind of share my my input as a patient who's been buried in this data for a little while. So, and with that, um, we'll open it up for questions or any comments anybody has. Or, or comments. So I I have some comments on the slide that describe the attributes of wearables. I noticed that there wasn't any insights on financial concerns or accessibility to these wearables. So this was done, okay, as a good question. This was done for a registration trial. So this would be to use a wearable in a trial in four therapeutic areas. So it was basically describing the trial you'd be in, which doesn't usually include any kind of question about finance. We did ask about data and bringing your own device, just to kind of get at that a little bit. Um, But that wouldn't have been appropriate in this kind of trial scenario to talk about finance. The data would would have gotten at that a little bit. So just so I'm clear, the, the wearables were provided? No, no, but you wouldn't ask a per- so a trial wouldn't provide information about money, right? Or you wouldn't ask somebody whether they could afford to be in the trial if you were accrediting them. But patients are expected to pay for certain expenses, so I'm just curious why that's not it, included. The way the question was asked, we, so there were these little um, vignettes of the trial. So there were four different ones related to those areas. The way the questions were asked, would you wear, would you participate in a trial if you had to wear a monitor? Yes or no? What would the attributes of that monitor be that were acceptable? Some of the slides that that um, that Les showed. And then at the end was, would you prefer your own device? Would you prefer to use your own data? Some people do prefer to use their own data. They don't want to check both. So that's the way we got at it. It didn't say you need to bring your own device. But we did ask whether you'd prefer to have one provision to you or whether you wanted to bring your own? I guess I just want to make sure that we're not 
indirectly excluding people who don't Could, have access or can't afford. See my first comment. Because <laughs> the people that answered were people who had broadband access. Exactly. Okay. Thank yeah. you for clarifying. And I'm just curious, um, it seems that this is a common problem. We're seeing at, at physicians and specialists' office that are including wearables into their workflow that the doctors are already overextended in what their responsibilities are. This data is being generated. It seems that there should be a line item for a budget for a point person, like a digital health data strategist, that would be a point person in collecting this data, making it not just organized but actionable, and then relaying insights either to the site, to the patient, or to the physician so that this is actually incorporated in a meaningful way, not just mass collecting data to have it. So in the trial, the site that came up in the site investigator, this it, it's potentially a recommendation at the site level. Because what Les said is the patient forgets to plug the device in or something, they call the site. So it's that part. But these are all areas we need to look at. But these are in clinical trials. The patient potentially needs the information to bring to their community health care provider, which may not be the same person that they see in the trial. But that's actually a good point. Um, when uh, I don't know how many of you were at the uh, Site Solution Summit, the SCRS Summit, um, but that actually came out in, in that uh, venue as well, that sites do need to budget and put into the budget for the clinical trial uh, the ability to have a technical coordinator, someone who's there who can troubleshoot problems for, uh, for the patient. Um, and that, that was something that was very, very clear as, uh, as part of that um, one of the sessions in that summit. Yeah. So we'll go here, and then you'll be the final question. Okay. <clears throat> hello, hello. Hey, my, my name is John Ziskin. I'm from Monarch Bionetworks, and we specialize in uh, virtual clinical trials. And just, I, I have a question, but just on your last point, the technical, you're, you're absolutely correct. You are seeing the tech, you are seeing the need for a technical coordinator, and we're and we're seeing that as well. And one of the things is that we've also learned is that in the BYOD scenario, the technical coordinator is even more burdened, so and significantly more burdened. So, for example, there's one iPhone platform, but yet there's hundreds of Android platforms, right? So, if you want to connect a weight scale or a watch it becomes quite a, a technical challenge. So we, we've, we've gotten to the point where we've just provisioned devices and make that a line item in the, in, the, in, the, in the process. My question for you was on patients wanting to see their data. This is, we're finding is an interesting place. We've done a few significant trials in rare disease where it's fairly debil extremely debilitating, the death sentence. And we're very nervous on providing data of deterioration of lung capacity, for example. And I just wanted to see, you know, if the questions you asked were so general, like, hey, I'd like to see my data. We all want, you know, I use a Garmin watch and I'd like to see my data, but, you know, how are, how are people going to be accepting of so, yeah, that, that knowledge? So, again, that's part of the challenge. I think, frankly, even as a patient who would want to see my data, 98% want to see it. I was yeah. surprised. And, and over 60% want to see it at least weekly. Yeah. If not in the immediate time. The other part that's in there, but it's not enough, it, it doesn't have a p-value, so to speak, is people assume, because they're wearing a wearable, that somebody is tracking them 24-7. Mm -hmm. And because you can see it in the comments, that it's got more, less risk and more security. That's why they don't have to go to the doctor because they're wearing something. These are things we have to think about in the informed consent as well as in the, the education of the providers as well as the patients. 
in in the but, case of the trial, that is true, right? I mean, we're we're doing things where if you don't if you don't adhere, we'll send you a notification at 10 a.m. If you don't adhere, we'll call you by noon. So that is that is right. In but fact, if I fall or I have a stroke in the middle of the night, yeah. an ambulance isn't going to show up. It's a great. <laughs> so point. that's, that's the, a great see, point. people are people, and these were potential participants, yeah. and most of them hadn't participated in a trial before. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, but your question around uh, willingness to see. Um, your data, if you are deteriorating and in you know stage four cancer, um, it, we really didn't get into the depth of that question. I think the question was more assuming you know you have a wearable, uh, you have some sort of sensor on you, you have the right to be able to see that data. I agree. The question of do you really want to see that data or not, given a, a specific situation, we we really didn't get into that in the survey. I mean, one of the questions we had, and sorry to go on, was that I'm deteriorating in my spirometry, spirometer. Yeah. Am I going to blow as hard? You know, I'm already this year. You know, so we, we kind of we're kind of looking at those kind of things. And I was wondering, you know, that was no, that's so an interesting my, part of my, that. my patient perspective is is people know that already, and they're sharing it online sometimes. <laughs> but 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 you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Uh, <clears throat> Graham Wiley from the Medical Research Network. Um, uh, just to comment on that last piece before I ask my question. As a physician, I think it's um, it's critical that patients have access to their to their knowledge, even if they're going to die. That's just the deal, yeah. right? They've got to be treated as grown-ups, and I think that's really important. So as a physician, I would always share data with patients. It's the only thing to do. Um, there are some exceptions, you know, genetic modelling and stuff. If you can't do anything about something you find out, then that's a difficult question. But So that, that would certainly be, I think, how most physicians would look at it. Um, the question I'm specifically here to ask, though, is... Um, the technology that we talked about in particular, uh, uh, you know, the, I think this telemedicine stuff is fantastic. And I think anything that takes work into the community is really powerful. We're in the same business. It's really important. <clears throat> the type of data that you're dealing with when you've got a, a data flow, constant data flow of information, which is ECG machines or, or vital signs or whatever it is, gives you a lot of this data problem. But it's also... It's also it's, it's visit independent, isn't it? It's not about visit structure anymore. You, uh, you, could, you could change trials so they don't have visits. And I know that's what the virtual trial design is sort of going towards, but um, my, my, I, the, it doesn't really matter whether that's in the community or in the site. You can put an ECG monitor on someone for someone who's always visiting the site and still get the data coming out of the system. Um, some of the other... I mean, I think the workload issues are very related to the community piece. So I'd, I'm interested in your understanding and your, uh, what you're learning in City about what is community-driven and what is technology-driven and, uh, and how, do, how do they mix? Me too. <laughs> I know, but there, it's so, it, this became so complicated and I'm not part of... I, I'm on the City Steering Committee and was part of the Scout team and a colleague from C-Script is here when we did the Lit search and, and a lot of preliminary work went into this. So it became four separate projects. And I believe the medical devices pro, um, project as well as legal and regulatory because our 50 states have 50 different laws concerning um, telehealth. So there, this is complicated. We want to go into it. We, As a patient advocate, I think we need to go into it. But we need to work with some 
got baby guidances maybe together and recommendations so that we could try it and learn. These were hypothetical questions to potential patient participants, but as far as we know, this is the only data out there of what people and sites really have to say about this. City will also be joining the 6th Annual Patients as Partners U.S. program on March 11th and 12th at the Wyndham Philadelphia Historic District Hotel in Philadelphia. They will share newly released recommendations and actionable tools, understand unique considerations for participants in mobile trials, and opportunities to effectively engage patients during trial planning. For more information on the 6th Annual event, visit www.theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.